This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God has not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kind of trees grow up out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of the life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of the Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and he closed the place up with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray as we dive in. Father, we think of this picture of being naked and unashamed And we realize that we live in a world where that is rarely possible. There's so many things that bring shame. There's so much self-consciousness and ego and hurt and pride that comes in the way when it comes to being vulnerable, especially with another human being. And yet, Lord, you created us to be in a relationship, and we pray that you would help us to see how this story informs our lives how we might be men and women who, as we leave our fathers and mothers and are united to our spouses and you do something miraculous there, that we would understand the nature of this union. And for those in this room called the singleness, that you would help them to understand the nature of their union with you. And that as we dwell in you and as we abide in our families, that we would see you bear much fruit through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a TV show called Naked and Afraid. You heard of this show? I think it's always a man and a woman. 
And they take these people and they take them out to like the rainforest or the jungle somewhere and they're naked and they're afraid. <laughs> they journey through the, the jungle and they have to encounter this other person that's naked and they stand there with them and, and in this awkwardness they realize that that is the least scary part of their journey because they have 21 days together to survive out in the wild, naked, naked, naked. And that kind of sounds like, oh, that's kind of fun, like Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve did not deal with mosquitoes. In the time of Adam and Eve, there were no carnivorous anythings. Animals ate plants. People ate plants. Nothing wanted to eat you in the time of Adam and Eve. In the time of Adam and Eve, there was temperate weather at all times. The world was stable, and the Garden of Eden was a place that you could survive naked in comfort. There were no downpours coming after you. There's no hypothermia or hyperthermia in the Garden of Eden. It was a stable place where God maintained the earth and made it perfect. And naked and afraid, everything is warring against these people. They're warring against each other. Nature is warring against them. The rains and the sun are warring against them. The animals and the insects are warring against them. Poison oak is warring against them. Food poisoning is warring against them. And yet when God created man in the first week of creation, the world was a sinless place. It was a stable place. It was a place where the weather and the nature and the people that were there and the animals all lived in harmony with one another. And God created it as a place where Adam could step into the garden and do the work of God there, naked and unashamed and unafraid. Adam was naked and unaware. He didn't know what clothes were, never had a need for them. And so God creates this garden in the middle of his earth. And this is before the rains came. This is before all the trees were growing all over the place. God set apart this garden of Eden, this, this boundary, this kingdom where man and woman would dwell. And he set it up so the whole thing would be maintained. The waters would come up from the dust of the ground and water the thing. Man was created from the dust of the ground and put in the garden of Eden. The animals were built up from the dust of the ground and they were placed in the garden. And man was set in the garden and God said, Go and be in this place and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over all of the animals and the plants and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Adam, go into the garden. And God creates this man from the dust and he creates this garden from the dust and he puts the man in the garden and says, tend to my creation. Sometimes it seems like it would be really fun to be stuck on a tropical island all alone. Can you imagine you just laying out there on the white sand beaches, swim trunks and unafraid? You could be naked if you wanted to. No one else is around. Drinking from coconuts. Build a little tree house like Swiss Family Robinson. You could put together these little contraptions that would catch the rainwater, and you can figure out which plants won't kill you, hopefully the first time. And, and you go and you figure out a way of life and... And we can think about that when we experience the busyness of life and the stress of night life and the brokenness of life. We think it would be very nice to be in a place where there's no one calling me 
and no one texting me, and no one lecturing me, and no deadlines, and no bitterness, and no drama, and no mosquitoes. That would be a really nice place to relax forever. As life gets busier, we realize that sometimes we need to be alone. My wife and I have been married for 11 years, and we have four children, and, and sometimes it feels busy, a lot of busyness in our house. So every once in a while, my wife will say, I'm, I'm going to take the kids and, and go out for the night, visit some friends, uh, the other, another town or whatever. And I think, I'm going to be alone for like almost 24 hours. And I picture my house as that tropical island with the hammocks and all that. And I think, this is going to be wonderful. My wife is leaving and I'm planning in my mind, okay, what's the number for Domino's? And, and how am I going to get the pizza here and the movie on as quickly as possible? And I can squeeze in 12 movies in 24 hours. And I'll sit on the couch. It'll be beautiful. And so I wave goodbye and say, I'll miss you so much. And then I run inside and I call the pizza guy and I sit on the couch. And within like five minutes, I think, it's not good for man to be alone. <laughs> I start missing your family. You realize that there's probably a better way to live your life than watching TV for 24 hours. And, and this image of being alone and unfettered and free quickly turns to sadness and despair and loneliness. If you've ever lacked community in your life, you know what that's like. You move to a new town or a new school and you don't know anybody. That's hard. And sometimes we, we have this ache in us to be married someday, and, and yet while we wait, we're lonely. Because even though we have friends, it's different, and we, we want that person to be with us. Now Adam in the Garden of Eden was probably less like naked and afraid, and probably more along the lines of Tom Hanks in Castaway. You know, exactly, there wasn't a lot of nature warring against him in that movie. I don't remember any, like, eagles swooping down and attacking him. I remember Tom Hanks having his greatest struggle being loneliness. I mean, he had Wilson. (laughs) Uh, But a lot of times a volleyball just doesn't cut it as a friend and a confidant. We were created to exist in community with someone else. As Adam steps into this garden, even though sin had not entered the world and things were good and he could live naked and unaware of it, God knew and Adam knew it is not good for man to be alone. Sometimes as we walk through life, we we know that too. God says about Adam, for Adam no suitable helper could be found. And sometimes we could feel like, okay, I understand Adam because I am alone in this world and I want to be married someday and I want to find a husband or I want to find a wife and and I get it. And yet Adam, he was literally the only human being in the world. And so he kind of had it a little worse than we have it when we feel that way. And yet the, the sentence that resonates with us most is that suitable helper thing. Because I've talked to so many people, a lot of you are in this room, that's why we kept the lights down tonight. There are some of you in this room who have said to me, I know there's guys around, and I know there's, or I know there's girls around, but I feel like there's no one suitable to be with. Thank God, are my standards too high? I don't need a guy with an airplane, you know, maybe a job. And you start to wrestle with it and say, okay, God, you know what? I want someone who loves you and is nice to me. That's all I want. 
And then you look around and you think, I don't know if there's anyone suitable to be found. And you come and you say, well, I feel like all the good girls or the good guys are married. And there's me, clothed and ashamed. <laughs> Lonely. God looked at Adam and he knew that Adam was lonely. And he said, I will make a helper suitable for him. I will step into Adam's lonely existence where he has a desire for a good thing. A desire for a wife or desire for a husband is a good thing. Desire for companionship with humans, not just elephants and giraffes and mice or whatever was in the Garden of Eden. That's a good thing. And yet God looks in and says, it's not good Adam's alone. I will make I will make someone for him. I will make someone appear that did not appear before. And so those of you who are thinking, I don't know where this woman or this man is, God can make someone appear who did not appear before. He said, I will make a helper suitable for Adam. That word helper kind of rubs us the wrong way sometimes. You think Adam's got this job in the garden tend to the animals and the plants and build this kingdom. And man, it's too much work. He needs a helper. Like he needs to hire a subcontractor. Like he needs an admin or something or he needs a little bit of support so that he can do the thing that he wants to do. Adam needs a helper, you know, that he's in charge there and he's the man. And yet he needs some kind of being that can help him. And an elephant's not going to cut it. And a giraffe's not going to cut it. He, he needs someone who can help him out, come alongside him. And, and sometimes we read that and we think, I don't like that because it makes it sound like Adam is like the guy and Eve is like the secretary. She's the assistant. She's the helper. It's interesting when we read this passage, we see that there's something very, very special about the woman. Man was created from the dust of the ground, Genesis 2 says. Because it was in a time when the rains had not yet come, and so waters came up from the dust of the ground. And God in that time had not yet sent the shrubs from the dust of the ground, and so he pulled up trees from the dust of the ground, and he put him in the garden and paraded in front of him all the animals that God built up from the dust of the ground, dust of the ground, dust of the ground, dust of the ground, dust of the ground. And then he says about the woman that he put Adam into a deep sleep and ripped open his flesh, and out of his flesh he created woman. The only being, the only thing in all of creation that wasn't created in Genesis 2 from the dust of the ground was the woman. What does that mean? There's this image, this really weird paragraph that says that the way that the garden was watered was that water would come up from the dust of the ground and then it would flow out from the garden. And from that flowing of water, it would separate into these four rivers and one would go and and water this area where they had great gold and onyx and resin, and another would water a second area, and a third would water a third area, and a fourth would water the fourth area, and one was the Tigris, and one was the Euphrates, and all of these rivers split out of the garden and kind of flowed in four different directions. And if I was to ask you, which is the most important of those rivers, you could probably think about it and think, okay, what are the criteria? You know, one river goes to a land that is full of different precious stones. That sounds really important. And one's the Euphrates. You don't mess with the Euphrates. One's the Tigris. The other one, I've never even heard of that land. That one's probably not the most important. And we can kind of debate on which one of these four rivers is the most important river based on what it does. 
And sometimes we can look at man and woman and decide which we think is the most important being based on what they tend to do. So even if we use like classic stereotypes, we say, oh, a woman loves to nurture and she raises her children and cares for her household and a husband likes to lead and he goes to work and, and we take like the 1950s look at it, we say, okay, one of those must be more important and we have to decide what's more important. Nurture or leadership? What's more important, uh, serving at home or serving in the world? And we realize that as we start to go down that path, it's very difficult to decide which of the two is most important. But we really want to know, is man more important than woman or is woman more important than man? Is woman extra special because she was created out of a rib? Or is man extra special because woman was formed from him out of his side, so he's the source, he's the primary being? And we can look and decide what we think is more important in the world and watch what women or men are doing or what our wife or our husband are doing or what some people's wives or some people's husbands are doing and, and make a, a call about which of those things is most valuable. But I think if we do that, we miss the whole point. Which is that with those four rivers, there's one source of water that breaks off and becomes four and then they flow back into the ocean again. And then it evaporates and it comes back up. And, or it goes back down around or however it worked at the Garden of Eden days. And, and it would start back again. And the rivers and the seas would keep flowing and flowing and flowing. And really if we want to ask, is the Tigris more important than the Euphrates? We'd really have to say, which of these water molecules are the most important? But that's difficult because a water molecule that flows down the Tigris and a water molecule that flows down the Euphrates all started with the same source. They're from the same place. It was the same water. They just flowed in two different ways. And the hard thing is that once they get to the end and they come back, they might go opposite directions. And so if a man is more important than a woman, or a woman is more important than a man, what happens when one couple experiences life in this direction, and another couple experiences life in this direction? Now we have a hard time because we want to know who's most important, and who's most valuable, and who's in charge, and who needs to submit to whom. And that's difficult because it just seems like they're kind of the same. When God creates Adam... He pulls out his rib and he fashions a woman from his side. And, and we almost see that picture that we see with those rivers, that one flesh diverges and outflows two fleshes, two beings. And so the question of which is more important is like asking which is more important, the Tigris or the Euphrates. You either have to decide which roles accomplish more or just realize they all come from the same place. Adam, in his despair, as he realizes that it's not good for him to be alone, and God says, I'll make a helper suitable for you, he starts bringing animals to him. And, and whatever Adam decided to call each animal, that was its name. And so Adam, as he's thinking about the fact that he's all alone in this world, has to spend all day dealing with elephant and lady elephant, and tiger and lady tiger. And man chicken and lady chicken, right? All day long just parading in front of him. And some of you know what that feels like because you're single and you see married people parading through Facebook all the time and parading at work and everyone's getting engaged and rings and you've got nothing and you think, why is God parading all these people in front of me? But for Adam, no suitable helper could be found. So God puts Adam into a deep sleep. He rips open his side. He rips out a part of him and fashions a woman out of his rib, wakes him up, and there's a naked woman in front of him. And Adam says, 
as says something really interesting. He doesn't say, wow, she's naked. He doesn't say, finally, someone to help me plow the field. Here's the thing, right? He says, this is a unique being in all of God's creation in that this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's whole response, his whole overwhelmed response to this this beautiful woman in front of him was that somehow she was him, but she wasn't him. She was him, but she was her. It wasn't like, wow, that's a lady, that's different than me. It was, wow, that's a a woman, That's, that's the helper suitable for me, but she's me. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She was taken out of man. Not like, oh, this is bone of my bones, not like elephant bones, not like giraffe bones or chicken bones. This is bone of my bones like a second ago I had an extra rib and now it's gone and it's a woman kind of thing. Something beautiful happens where God separates Adam into two beings. And and in that reunification, it's like the one became two and then became one again. And God says, Adam, I designed you to live in this planet so that when you cling to your wife and you are one together, you can accomplish the work that I have for you on this planet. It's beautiful how the image of God happens there. We know that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's like that water exists in four rivers, or Adam and Eve exist in two persons, and yet they're, they're one. And it's a mystery, and we don't get it, and, and yet we know that there is one God. But there is a Father, and there is a Son, and there is a Spirit, and they're individuals. They have unique personhoods, and yet there's one God, not three. And when Adam and his wife cling together, and experience oneness in the union of their relationship, creation happens. That when these two become one flesh, children are born. And and just like God in his Godhead, when, when the Spirit was hovering over the waters and the Son was speaking into the existence and the Father was looking over all things, creation was happening out of the mouth of God in the Father, Son, and Spirit. Creation flowed into the world. When man and woman reunite and become one, miraculous creation flows from their own bodies and they're able to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and together they can subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they can truly live out the image of God and the mandate of God as they simply cling to one another. In the New Testament, when marriage verbiage is used, often it's not referring to to a couple getting married. It's referring to the, the marriage that God has had with his bride, the church. There's this picture at the communion meal where Jesus takes this cup, this marriage cup, and he says, this cup is my covenant, the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. 
And, and it's almost like Jesus is turning to his disciples and saying, drink this cup, this marriage cup, and you'll enter a covenant with me and we'll be united. The son and his church will be united as this one being together. And, and it's really interesting that as Jesus goes to the cross, we almost see a repicturing of Genesis chapter 2. Jesus ends his life forsaken and alone on the cross. The Father forsakes him. The world forsakes him. Nature forsakes him. There's, there's terrible things going on on that cross. And then God puts Jesus into a deep sleep. He dies on the cross. And a Roman soldier comes over and opens up his side. And blood pours out of his side. Not a rib, but, but blood. And Jesus says, in that blood, I will create my new creation. He says, drink this. This is the new covenant in my blood. That as Jesus died and his blood is poured out for us, his church, we enter into this marriage covenant with the Godhead, with the God of the universe. And we become united with him. And so what that means for us who are not married in this room is that if you want to fulfill God's calling to go into the world and transform things, to rule over the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply, it's not yet happening in your human marriage relationship. It's happening in your relationship, your marriage covenant with God. That Jesus says, as you abide in me, and I in you, and we cling to one another, you bear much fruit. That's how we're fruitful and multiply, is that we cling to one another. As we experience oneness with Jesus, fruit is born. Lives are changed. Things change. We change. Our community changes, not as we go and do stuff for God, but as we cling to him. Jesus says, abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the helper in the same way that the woman was described as the helper in the Garden of Eden. That as we cling together with Christ, somehow he does his work of creation through us. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, if you're not married, maybe you shouldn't get married. Because think of how much great ministry you can do when you cling to Christ and he becomes the other side of your covenant in life. When you abide in him with all your energy and your interest is not divided with a, a human relationship and a spiritual relationship, then you can spend all of your time clinging to him and seeing him work through you. Paul says, before you get married, understand that when you do that, your interests become divided. That's not bad. It's just true. That once you're married, now your interest is for your wife and your family and God has given you an amazing responsibility and calling to cling to your family and to rule over your family and to build your family and to cling to your husband, cling to your wife and watch God work in the same kind of miraculous ways in that space. And yet, when we're single and all of our energies goes toward Christ and his work, we're not feeling stretched between running after what God has and running after our family. So when you're single, you cling to Christ like someday you might cling to a husband or cling to a wife and realize that as you cultivate your relationship with him, transformation happens. Creation comes through that relationship. And then when you step into a marriage relationship, the way that God works through a marriage is the same way he works between us and him. We cling to our spouse and transformation happens. Sometimes we think that the way that transformation happens is we work side by side with our spouse. 
And you do the dishes and I'll take care of the kids. Or you cook the dinner and I'll clean the backyard or whatever it was. And as you just plow together side by side, then then hopefully life gets better and hopefully fruit is born. But, But the picture that we see in the Garden of Eden is God commanding a man and a woman to cling to one another, abide with one another, cultivate a relationship between one another. And when you do that, God uses that union in miraculous ways. The world sees what he looks like within his Godhead. The world sees what God's relationship with the church is like as you have a relationship with your spouse and serve your spouse. The world sees something amazing as you just exist and love with someone else in this world. But also God works through you as you raise your children and you build a legacy in your family for generations to come. As you work together with your family to change your community and change the world and and connect with the people around you, God uses those things as a family starts to bear fruit and multiply and fill the earth. As Adam and Eve stood in the garden and, and marveled at their relationship, we see that they were naked and unashamed. They were able to experience this beautiful oneness with one another and And that's something that a lot of us have run after our whole lives. That picture of wanting to be naked and unashamed. Sometimes we run into relationships and and we hope that we can become naked and unashamed with our boyfriend or our girlfriend. And yet there's always this this shame that comes. And God says, I've designed this covenant relationship, this marriage union where a man and a woman become one. To be a place where you can start to experience this amazing thing you'll never experience anywhere else where you can be vulnerable, literally and figuratively, naked with this person and yet exist in this relationship that is not full of shame or fear or guilt, but security and safety and love. In the covenant of marriage, there's a covenant renewal ceremony. Every covenant has a renewal ceremony. And that renewal ceremony is the sexual union between man and woman. God says, as you become one flesh, that's a reminder of this covenant you have. And it's interesting, in the covenant that Jesus has with us, he gives us a renewal ceremony as well. He says, I want you to remember this union you have with me, but by coming and eating of this bread and drinking of this cup. And as often as you come to this place and you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember my death. You go back to where I bought you on the cross and you remember that thing. So tonight as we take communion... We remember him. We remember the blood that was poured out for us, the blood that made us a new creation. We remember the one who rose from the grave to give us life. We remember the body that was given for us as Jesus gave his all on the cross. And as we experience this ceremony of covenant renewal, we're refreshed and renewed and rejuvenated in our relationship with Christ. Tonight, as we continue to sing and and as you come down and, and take communion, let me encourage you to spend some time before you come down and, and think about your relationship with him. And if you were in a relationship with a husband or a spouse and you just felt like, I don't want to be intimate with you anymore. There's something wrong there that needs to be addressed. And, and some of us are feeling that way in our relationship with Christ that I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't feel like being in a relationship with you anymore and yet you want to come and eat this because that's what you're supposed to do. Let me encourage you tonight that that is what you're supposed to do. But spend some time before you do that and and be honest with God and say, God, here's where I'm at. I haven't talked to you in a long time. 
I don't know if I even know you. I'm angry because of this thing that happened. And I know that I shouldn't be angry, but I am. And, and spend some time and have that conversation with him. And then come down and, and grab a piece of bread and, and dip it in a cup and, and eat it. And then return to your seat. Let this be a time of covenant renewal. Let this be a time where you renew your covenant with him and remember what he did on the cross. Let's pray, and then we'll take communion. As we prepare to pray, I'm sure there are some of us tonight who are realizing in this moment that we don't have a relationship with Christ. And maybe we've been acting like we're dating Jesus or something, but we've, we're not married. We haven't stepped across that line of faith and received that cup that Jesus hands to us and says, drink this, and when you drink this, you will be transformed forever. We know that that cup that Jesus hands us is faith in his death and resurrection. Tonight, if you, you've never stepped over the line of faith and asked Christ to forgive you of your sins and give you new life and enter into a relationship with you, take some time and do that before we move on tonight. You can come and figuratively receive that cup after you bring your life and give it to Jesus and take this communion and realize that that's what you're doing. You're accepting his proposal to step into a covenant relationship that doesn't end when we die but lasts forever and ever and ever. Let this be a night where you enter into a relationship with him for the first time and are irrevocably changed. We pray, God, that you would give us the faith to understand who you are. If we've got things that we're wrestling with, we pray that you would help us to see what you have for us. Help us to see the world that you've created in the way that you've created it. Give us the courage to bring our doubts up to someone else or even bring them up to you even in this moment and pray that you would meet us. Tell us that when we seek you with all our hearts, we'll find you. We pray that we would be men and women who are constantly seeking you. And tonight as we come and take this communion meal and eat this bread and drink this cup, let us remember that Jesus came for us, died for us, rose for us, and extended this covenant relationship to us. And let us remember that death as we drink this cup. Let us remember his body as we eat this bread. And let us remember the covenant that we have, that he's initiated for us. Give us a special time of communion, we pray. In Jesus' name.